as Cheryl explained to the children, Peter and John had just healed their man crippled from birth who was begging outside the temple in Jerusalem and had been explaining to the astonished crowds who knew the man well because he was there begging every day presumably, now he's leaping and jumping around and praising God, they've been explaining that this happened, it was done in the name of Jesus, the one who was crucified recently in this very city and has been raised to life by God. They're interrupted by the arrival of the religious authorities with the religious police. Verse 1 then, the priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading further, any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Now, as you've already heard today, very appropriately, is the day in which we're urged to pray internationally for the persecuted church. I believe every committed, serious Christian should know what is happening in our world. There is news that is available regularly. I don't know about you, most of us now are on email. I click on my email, I'm away a day, and suddenly there's 20 or 30 emails there. Some of them I scrub immediately, some of them are important, and some of them cause me grief. And the one from the Barnabas Trust about suffering Christians every week causes me grief. Reading of Christians suffering for the name of Christ in horrific circumstances. And we cannot ignore that. And I urge you to just log on and get, if you're on email, most of you are on email, particularly younger folk, log on and get the information and pray. However, having said that, when you've got the information, what do we pray for those who are being persecuted? That's our theme this morning. How should we pray? There's a map that's been produced, you can see it on the screen here, a map showing where Christians are being persecuted, the persecuted church. So, as you look at a map like that, and you come to pray for persecuted Christians, let me ask you a question. What do you expect in answer to your prayer? Are you praying that the number of dark areas will be reduced? So that eventually, there will not be any places where the church is not persecuted. It seems to me that many of us mentally kind of think that. And that behind it is a kind of assumption. The assumption is this. There are two kinds of churches in the world today. There's the non-persecuted church, like where we are, and in the West, the bits that aren't dark, and then there's the persecuted church. And we also assume that the non-persecuted church, where we are, is what's normal for Christians. And these guys and men and women and boys and girls who live in the dark area, the persecuted church, they're the abnormal ones. So what we're praying for is that these people will be able to live normal, non-persecuted lives as Christians. And I believe we are wrong, fundamentally wrong, on both counts. There is only one church of Jesus Christ, And, if it is following its master, it will always be persecuted. A persecuted church is a normal church. Now, why do I say that? I say it because Jesus himself said it. Before he returned to heaven, preparing his disciples for what lay ahead, this is what he said, it's recorded in John's Gospel. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love, it would love you as its own. As it is. You don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Also, John 15, 18-20. Now, I can't see you can get away from that. Did they persecute Jesus? Yes. Did they persecute his followers? Yes. 
The record of the book of Acts, one writer puts it like this, the experience of the early church. As soon as the Spirit came upon the church, Satan launched a fierce counter-attack. Now, before we get into the prayer, I want you to think also, what is it that triggered off the opposition? What was it that made them oppose these Christians? Well, the actual incident which ignited everything was the healing of this crippled man at the beautiful gate outside the temple in Jerusalem by Peter, one of the apostles. Now, why would anyone want to go around stopping people, healing people? But that wasn't the real issue. It was triggered not by the healing of the crippled man. After being hauled up before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, they were not told, the apostles, stop healing people. No, they were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That is the fundamental issue. That is what aroused the opposition in the name of Jesus. If you keep up with the press, and I hope you take a newspaper and find what's happening in the world, you may be aware there's a big controversy this Christmas time about the Christian charity Samaritan Purse, which has its Operation Christmas Child, where people are encouraged to get a shoebox, and some of you do it, I know. You know these shoeboxes they give you when you buy your new shoes and they say, do you want the box? Well, Christians all now, they're, they're suffering now because most people used to say no. Christians now say, yeah, and I'll have as many more as you've got I can take. And you fill them with, with goods to people, for people in parts of the world who are less well off at Christmas time. In an article written in the Garden newspaper, written by a church minister, he roundly condemns this. This is what he writes. It all sounds innocent enough. Operation Christmas Child is, quote, is a new, unique ministry that brings Christmas joy packed in gift-filled shoeboxes to children around the world. Over the past 10 years, 24 million shoeboxes have been delivered, making it the world's largest Christmas project for children. Every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan has packed a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. In the U.K., thousands of churches and schools, youth clubs are doing the same. But what many parents and teachers don't know, says the writer, is that behind this is the evangelical charity Samaritan's Purse. Their aim is, quote, the advancement of the Christian faith through educational projects and the relief of poverty. Now, of course, Christian parents and teachers and all of us know that it's a Christian organisation. And we're certainly not saying, unless you accept our message, you won't get a Christmas box. Or we'll only send it to people who are willing to become Christians. We're not making rice Christians. But just as people could, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ walk, surely it is legitimate to say, in the name of Jesus Christ I give you this gift. Apparently it is not. So a campaign has been launched to try and stop the project. Appeals have been made to the post office to stop delivering these parcels, unsuccessfully at the moment. They want the gifts of Christmas, but not the Christ of Christmas. In fact, I'm surprised they're not appealing that we should change the name to Xmas Project, or what they did in Birmingham recently. Don't let's talk about Christmas anymore. Let's call it Winterval. I mean, really. The reason? Because if people hear it's from Christians, it will be deeply, I quote again, this is deeply offensive to people of other faiths. And I have to tell you, 
the claims of Jesus Christ always offend people of other faiths and people particularly of no faith. You imagine, here's Peter, this unschooled fisherman, standing up before the leading religious authorities of his nation, experts in Judaism. And he says to them, salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name than Jesus. Under heaven, given among men, by which we may be saved. Is it any wonder they warned him? And said, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And increasingly in our society, this will become the issue. Or you can talk about God in a sort of vague way. But Jesus was, is, and always will be an offence. So when this kind of thing happens, and this is really kind of, for us anyway, where we are, it's a kind of preparation for persecution, all right? When it happens, as it inevitably will, what should Christians do? Well, well pay attention, because it may well happen. I'm going to suggest to you that it will happen sooner than you think in this country. If it's going to happen, what do you do? We pray. Don't retaliate. We pray together. When it happens, I won't be standing in Charlotte Chapel saying, it's a pity there are so few people at the prayer meeting on Tuesday. There'll be a lot more people there. And that is what Peter and John did. Will you notice? When they were released from prison, told not to speak in the name of Jesus, they went back to their fellow Christians and they gathered together to pray. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Verse 24. Now we're going to look at what they actually prayed. Their, responses, their response to threats was united prayer. Now we have something very interesting here. The Bible, the New Testament, records on many occasions that Christians prayed. We have very few records of what they actually said when they prayed. This is one of them. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott says, Luke has evidently taken pains to give us this prayer so that it might serve as something of a pattern to be followed in our own praying. And as I looked at this prayer and thought it through, I simply want to focus on the two aspects of prayer. What are the two aspects of prayer? Well, prayer is one person speaking to another person. In prayer, it is us speaking to God. So I want to focus, first of all, on God, the one who is addressed as the Sovereign, and then to look at those who call themselves his servants. So let's look at that together, because it's very important. First of all, notice in verses 24, and, and this is where it begins. It doesn't begin with us. When you come to God in prayer, whoever you talk to about anything, you need to know, if I speak to that person, are they going to be willing and able to help me? When we come to God in prayer, we need to know that he is willing and able to hear and answer our prayers. So they focus, first of all, on the sovereign and his rule. When you listen, if you overhear a conversation or watch something on television of two people speaking to one another, you can learn a lot about their relationships by the way that they address one another and even in the terms that they use. So I was thinking of an example that's very close to home this week. Uh, when the dental assistant called me into the surgery on Thursday to have my tooth removed, she said, 
Reverend Granger, please come this way. I was kind of encouraged. I'm embarrassing Eddie up there, our kind dentist. And when Eddie sat down, he was much more relaxed. And I thought, thank goodness Eddie is a friend. My mouth is in his hands. (laughs) And he did a great job. Now, how you address God in prayer reveals an awful lot about your relationship with God. Many years ago, I had a friend who worked for the BBC and he did a big documentary following Prince Charles around for a few weeks. He was told before it began what the protocol was, how he was to address Prince Charles, what term he was to use. I can say, couldn't you say, hey, Charlie, or something like that. Those special words you have to use, your high I don't know what it was, I can't remember. So, When you speak to God in prayer, when you address the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, how do you address Him? You remember the disciples once asked Jesus how to pray. They said, Luke, in his first volume, Luke Acts is the second one, of course, in Luke 11, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. Luke 11, verse 2. Some people think, This then is how Christians should always address God as Father. It's a privilege and intimacy. And together we sometimes say, Our Father. Notice something interestingly here. These apostles who'd been with Jesus, some of them his closest friends like Peter and John, they didn't pray, Father. In fact, the record of the Bible shows that people address God in many and different ways. There are many different ways in which we can legitimately address God. I would also suggest that we be cautious about addressing Him in ways that are not mentioned in the Bible. You're on much safer ground and you've got plenty more scope. If you look at the, It's an interesting exercise. Just go through the Bible and look at the different terms that people use when addressing God. So, here's the question. What term determines... Uh, what determines which term you use when you're speaking to God? And I would suggest to you, it is determined largely by the situation in which you find yourself and what you're asking for. In Acts 4.24, the early Christians didn't address God as Father, but as Sovereign Lord, which I think is an appropriate term of address in their situation. The word translated Sovereign Lord there is only one word in Greek. I'll tell you what the word is in Greek not to show off, but because you'll recognise an English word that comes from it. The word used there is despotes, or in the vocative, despota, from which we derive our English word, despot. Now, I've been to loads and loads of prayer meetings. I've never heard anyone, certainly in Charlotte Chapel, stand up and pray, despot. Oh, despot. Because to us, it has a negative image. My dictionary defines it as an absolute or tyrannical power. But originally, it simply meant someone with absolute control over a certain sphere of influence. In fact, it's the normal word used in the New Testament for masters. Masters of households. When it is used of God, it reminds the speaker that he is the master of the universe. The one who is in control of everything. Now, do you begin to get a handle on why the Christians address God and remind themselves 
who they were coming to. Oh yes, he was their father. That was an intimacy. But he was also the despot, the ruler of everything. Interesting, I did a bit of research this week. There are only two other prayers in the New Testament where people address God using this particular term. first one is right at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. If you know the Gospel story, do you remember when the parents of Jesus brought their baby into the temple? And there was an elderly priest there called Simeon who had been waiting, longing for the coming of the Messiah. He'd been told by the Holy Spirit he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And he took the baby in his arms and he said, Sovereign Lord, despot, now let your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation for the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. If you, if you grew up in an Anglican church, you sang it every week. The Nunc Dimittis, Luke 2, 29-32. What is he saying? He sees this baby and he says, Sovereign Lord, you're in control. You've done it. It's everything that you promised. Now the second time it's used in the New Testament is in the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation. And there's a picture there of the suffering church, of the martyrs under the altar. And they're praying to God. And they're saying, how long? Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood. What are they saying? We've been martyred for the sake of Christ. Lord, you're in control. Do something. Justify your name. Bring about your justice. Now back in Acts 4, the early Christians used the same term, reminding themselves, all this opposition is ranged against them. They've been told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, or else. And what do you do in that situation? You either buckle under it, or you come to the God who is sovereign over everything. You see, understanding who God is, will affect how you pray to him. I don't know what situation you're in, what opposition you're facing, what bad news you got this week. If you come to a God who is so small that you think, well, I just don't know whether he can do anything about it, and I don't know whether he's interested, well, you're in trouble. But if you come to a God who's supreme, who's sovereign, who's a despot over all things, And if you're being persecuted for Christ, you need to know that he's sovereign Lord. Now, very briefly, if you look at the prayer, God's sovereignty is expressed in three different ways. They remind themselves. First of all, they say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is sovereign in creation. You made. They're not addressing some local deity here. They're addressing the one who made it all. Fantastic. Not only that, God has revealed his sovereign in revelation. He spoke. Verses 25 and 26. It's very interesting. We don't have time to look in detail at this. The first thing they do is they remind God of what he said through David in Psalm 2, the Hebrew hymn book. One of the reasons we sing hymns, among many, is to remind us in difficult circumstances of truths about God. You want to learn a good hymn, learn the hymn that we sang before 
the message. How firm a foundation he thanks to the Lord. He's laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he said? To you who did Jesus for refuge is fled. You'll be in some situation. See, Andrew, they're in India. I remember the first time I got malaria. You've had it, haven't you, Andrew? And you feel like you're going to die. In every condition. In sickness, in health. In poverty's veil or abounding in wealth. At home or abroad. On the land or the sea. As thy days may demand, so thy strength ever be. And they say to God, God, We've got this situation here. These people are opposing us, but we thank you that you already told us about it through David hundreds of years ago in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So they say, this is just what's happening to us. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, in this city to conspire against your holy servants, whom you anointed. The nations of Psalm 2 are the Gentiles. The people are the Jewish authorities. The kings of Psalm 2 are represented by King Herod Antipas. The rulers by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. In other words, all that has happened to them, God already said it would happen to them. It's not caught them by surprise, for God has revealed in his word that such a thing would happen to his anointed one. You go back and read Psalm 2, it's a fantastic psalm. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. And the, the psalmist says, the one who sits in heaven laughs. You know what, God sometimes laughs? The one who sits in heaven laughs in scorn. Who do they think they are? that they can thwart my plans. The one who sits in heaven, he laughs. Now, when you're down on earth, it's no laughing matter. But when you're the God who is the despot, the sovereign Lord over all things, and looks at these puny little ants down below, trying to shake their puny fists at him, he laughs. Now, if you want to know how to pray when you're persecuted, in fact, if you want to know how to pray in any circumstance, you need to know what God has said in his word about it. Because it's all there. There's nothing new that will happen to you that God hasn't, in general terms, that God has not already spoken about in order to prepare you for it. So the amazing thing to me is that Christians just don't know this book. Or they only know bits of the New Testament. Or favourite verses that they pick off calendars out of context. Really, it's just amazing. It's so important. And so what do we do when we pray? We just, come, we just say the first thing that comes into our heads, which any other human being would ask for in those circumstances. Now, God hears those kind of prayers. Don't mistake me. But he doesn't expect them of those who know him. He expects us to know his word. To appeal, to stand on the promises of God. To claim what God has said in his word. Uh, to take them like a banknote to the bank of heaven and say, Lord, this is what you said in your word. Please fulfill what you said. And notice thirdly, they prayed not only to the God who is sovereign in creation and revelation, he's sovereign in history. Look what it says in verse 26. All that they did, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Peter said the same thing on the day of Pentecost. He said, you crucified him, but God planned him. 
God planned it. So these Christians knew that no matter what happened, no matter what warnings might be issued against them, God had already got it in hand. He knew already what was going to happen. I'm here in church today. Let's give you a silly example, and it really is a silly example. Someone told me, our church officer just told me before the service, that England are through to the final of the Rugby World Cup. Now I can record it, and I can watch the highlights later, and I can enjoy every minute of it, because I'm absolutely sure that what the result is going to be. It's absolutely certain. Nothing's going to change it. Good old Johnny Wilkinson. 24 points again. Fantastic, I'll enjoy it. Now, that's a silly example, trivial. God knows ahead of time what your opponents are going to do. He knows ahead of time what other people are going to do. He's got it all in hand. He decided beforehand. Now, in some mysterious way, we have free will to participate in that. I don't understand how the two things come together, but I'm absolutely sure of this, that God is sovereign. So do we have that same assurance when we come to God in prayer? Or do we sometimes think, gosh, what happened to me last week has caught, caught God completely unaware and there's just nothing you can do in this situation. Really? And only then will you pray with confidence. Our time is going. We turn from the sovereign Lord then and his rule to the slaves and their requests. I want you to notice there are actually, if you look at it closely, three prayer requests which the believers then make. Having come to this God who is sovereign over all things, in control of everything, spoken, revealed, creation, revelation, history. What do you then pray to this God? Well, notice what they don't pray. They didn't say, Lord, please stop this persecution. Why not? Surely it would be normal, you say. Don't we ask and expect God to heal us when we get sick, give us a job when we're redundant, give us a partner when we're single or betrayed? Give us money when we're broke? Isn't that what God's there for? You know, some people really think that. If you look at the God channel, there are people who will tell you that that's what God wants for you. And if you send them some money, they'll pray it for you. The more, the more you send them, the more they'll pray and the better you'll get. Nonsense. Really. What do you get when you come to a sovereign Lord? What do you expect? Nothing. Because you're a servant. They say, Lord, we're your servants. Again, it's a bad translation in English, but it literally means, we're your household slaves. We're, we're here to do your business, not you to do ours. Get it the right way around. We're here to do your business. To do your bidding. There's a lovely psalm, again, some of you probably never read it. It's fantastic. The Psalms of Ascent, when the pilgrims went up to Jerusalem, we did a series, it's on tape, if you want to listen to them. Psalm 123, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of a slave, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eye of a maid looks to the hand of our mistress, so our eyes look to God until he shows us his mercy. Now you can say, oh, that's old covenant. We have a far more intimate relationship with God under the new covenant through Jesus. Yes, we do. But these are spirit-filled believers, just filled with the Spirit. But their prayer requests were not driven by their own agenda, but driven by the concerns of the sovereign. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that remarkable book, and I hope some of you got it. It's on the bookstore. 
the heavenly man, the story of Brother Yoon. If you read the persecution that the house churches are going through in China, it is just unbelievable. I, I don't think I could even publicly say some of the things that they've gone through. This is what Brother Yoon says. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and his power. Spoken by a man who's had his legs broken, electric prods put in his mouth, and horrific, unspeakable things day after day for years and years in prison. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. Isn't that surprising? And that was the attitude of the believers in Acts 4. Look at their three prayer requests, and, and I'll need to go a little more quickly. The first prayer request is to do with the opposition. Now, when we face opposition and difficulties, most of our prayer, unfortunately, focuses, our emotional prayer energy is focused on the people who oppose us and what we want God to do to them. What do the apostles say? Now, Lord, consider their threats. They don't pray, Lord, give them what they deserve, sort them out, pay them back in kind. And I have to tell you, I speak for myself as much as anyone else, when people do... When someone does something to you that hurts you deeply, when you come to God in prayer, if you can manage to do it, how easy it is to spend all your time and energy focusing on that person and what you want God to do to them. Notice what they say. Lord, you know about... We're just bringing to your attention these threats. We'd ask you to put them on your agenda and to consider them. And whatever you choose to do, we'll leave the outcome to you. You see, we follow Jesus. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 43 to 44. When you pray, Lord, consider their threats, you're saying, Lord, look at what they're doing, and you, the sovereign Lord, do what is right. Do that to them, which will most advance your kingdom, even if it means your kingdom will be better advanced by letting them continue to persecute your people. Now, it's easy for me to say that. I'm not living in Sudan or Saudi Arabia. But I believe it's true. You see, we can say like Jesus, Father, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me. That's your natural inclination. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Imagine if the Father had accepted his request and taken the cup from him. You know what would have happened? None of us would have been here today. Charlotte Chapel wouldn't have been here. There'd have been no church. So often we come to God, we tell God what we want to do to people, and when nothing happens to them and they seem to still flourish, we, we get mad with God and we go in a huff and say, well, I'm not speaking to God anymore. I'll stop going to church. I'm not really going to give up this Christianity business. He's not doing what I expected him to do. We have no right to demand of God. We are his servants. Do what is right. Brother Yoon again writes, Once I spoke in the West and a Christian told me, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call down curses on them. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of our own lives and the governments we live under. Leave the destiny of the opposition with God. What do they pray for themselves? It simply prayed, enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. <laughs> that was what they were there for. That is why the Holy Spirit had been given to them. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. 
beginning in Jerusalem, that's where they are. And so they say, Lord, that's what you called us to, so please help us above all else to fulfill our calling to speak your word with boldness. That was the priority of the Spirit-filled church. Now I ask you, is that our priority as a church? Is that most of all what we want to be about? Speaking the word of Jesus into our society with boldness. And if not, is that not why we are not filled with the Spirit? Because if we were filled with the Spirit, that is, what, that is the only reason I can see that God primarily gives us the Spirit to make us more like Christ, but to send us out into the world to witness for him. Finally, they ask the Lord to do something to act in power. Lord, they say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Just as the healing of this beggar had provided an opportunity for the gospel and sparked off persecution, so they asked the Lord to do similar things. But notice that the message about Jesus was the focus and signs showed the significance. They were not putting on a great big show of healing people to entertain loads of Western Christians. It was in the context of persecution. Again, you'll get fed up with me quoting from this book, but I quoted this last time. It will now make more sense. Brother Yun, and they've seen some incredible miracles in the house church in China. Read the book. Once you start it, you won't put it down. In China, the greatest miracles we see are not the healings or other things, but lives transformed by the gospel. We believe we are not called to follow signs and wonders, but instead the signs and wonders follow us when the gospel is preached. We don't keep our eyes on the signs and wonders. We keep our eyes on Jesus. So this is how and what the believers prayed when faced with persecution. Very briefly, almost finished, what was the outcome? The outcome was they were filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And the Lord answered their prayer request, so that they spoke the word boldly, verse 33, if you read on, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. Great power in witnessing, and as they continued to witness powerfully, what happened? The opposition increased, great persecution followed. In the next chapter, when they're brought before the Sanhedrin, it's not just a verbal warning, they're flogged and released. In chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, is killed because he preaches in the name of Christ. And following that, if you turn over in the page in Acts 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against all the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now you think about it, if you'd been a Christian there, what would you have said? We've all been driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. What a disaster! No, as they preached powerfully, they were persecuted powerfully, and the believers then, God thrust them out because of that persecution. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem anymore, enjoying one another's company. They were sent out. And look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered, not the apostles, notice. They were stuck back in Jerusalem. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And the gospel continued to grow. And the persecution continued to increase. And the gospel continued to grow. And in the first three centuries of the Church of Jesus Christ grew astronomically until it became, with mixed blessings, the religion of the whole civilized world and the Roman Empire, the spreading word. You see, 
there is only one authentic church, the persecuted church, which is a witnessing church, the witnessing church, which is the persecuted church. And God will use persecution to make us a witnessing church. And I say this, and I don't claim to be a prophet, by any means. But I believe in Britain, we are not far removed from the day when the words of Peter the Apostle may lead to the persecution and imprisonment of Peter the pastor if he is prepared to say publicly, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. If and when it happens, it should not take us by surprise or leave us at a loss for words to know what to pray. Let's pray together.